This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 315, and we are recording on January 25th. I'm Amanda Nelson, and I'm here with Jen Northington, and we are coming to you from Book Riot. And my sexy sinus infection voice, I don't know. (laughs) Maybe it's COVID. Maybe she's born with it. We'll find out. (laughs) That was a maybe it's Maybelline joke for those of you who were born in the 90s and will understand. (laughs) Or born in the 80s. Oh, Lord. Was that a 90s commercial? Maybe she's Maybelline. Do they still make those? I don't know. I don't know. The only commercials I see right now ever are Jeopardy commercials and mm. like commercials that air during Jeopardy, which are a really weird cross section of like <laughs> political and then visit Fort oh. Lauderdale and then like a thousand <laughs> medications. So well, that seems right for the probably assumed audience yes. of Jeopardy. Yeah. 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 I mostly on live TV only use live TV to watch football and Jeopardy. So the ads mm. during football are the worst. It's yeah. like we're already getting election ads for the midterms and I Ugh. can't deal with it. I just throw yeah. my remote control in rage. I can't. I can't. <laughs> can't we have five minutes? Anyway, the answer is no. The answer is no. <laughs> so welcome. Welcome to Get Booked. Um, how the show works is that we are a show for personalized reading recommendations, as stated. So you can send those recommendation requests to us via email at getbookedatbookriot.com. Or you can leave them in the form, which is at the bottom of the show notes on the site. If your question is time sensitive, then please put that in the subject line of the email or put it in big, bold letters in the first line if you use the form. Or if it's like hella time sensitive, like you need it right now, you can get your question answered to the suite for $10 if you go to bookriot.com slash fast track. Uh, when you complete your purchase, it'll be redirected to the form. It will collect your question and then we will answer it. Immediatement. I don't know what language that is. I just made that word up. It was maybe French. I was just doing the reviews, like refreshing my memory to answer a question about the French Revolution mm. later in the show. So I, I have horrible French accent brain right now, <laughs> which we will all experience later if you're welcome. Okay. <laughs> feedback time. We have a lot. We have a piece of feedback from Amanda who says, for Carol, who wanted books about nature that were not prescriptive, I recommend Joyful by Ingrid Fettel Lee. The author is a designer who writes about how various design elements impact our lives. And she also includes some research, uh, psychology studies, cultural traditions, etc. A lot of the book is about nature, the positive impact of nature in our world, and how we can incorporate nature into our home. From Annie, I have a recommendation for Emily, whose parents had just sold her childhood home. You really need to read The Ocean at the End of the Lane by Neil Gaiman. It's speculative fiction, so I don't know how you feel about that, but this book is exactly what you're looking for. It's about a man who comes home for his father's funeral and then goes down to the house at the end of the lane where his childhood friend lives and sits down next to a pond and thinks about his childhood. I co-signed that. I didn't think of that book when Mm. we were answering that question, but I think that's a really good pick. And then from Elizabeth, another one for Carol, who was looking for the nature writing memoir hybrid, The Sound of a Wild Snail Eating by Elizabeth Toba Bailey. I also co-signed that one. All right, I'm going to read us our first question. We'll hear from our sponsor, and away we will go. Our first question is from Julie, who says, My 12-year-old son and I like to listen to audiobooks together in the car. 
He's a history buff, and he's reached a point where he'll only listen to nonfiction. He's especially interested in all the American wars, from the Revolution to Afghanistan. He has a high reading comprehension, so I'm not worried about level or content, but he is only 12, so a dry textbook won't work for him or me. I was hoping you could recommend either some compelling narrative nonfiction or a memoir for us. He would prefer a focus specifically on soldiers, battles, or military strategy. All right, let's hear from our first sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95. And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Irena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Disney Books. Do y'all like Caribbean mythology? What's more, a thriller inspired by Caribbean mythology? If you do, I got something for you. A must-read thriller that draws from the darkest corners of Caribbean mythology from acclaimed author Sarah Das, who crafts a chilling tale of magic, murder, and how far we'll go to protect what's ours. It's perfect for fans of Angeline Bully and Tiffany D. Jackson. So, unlike other people on the small island of St. Virgil, Selena Da Silva does not believe in magic. She has a logical mind. She likes botany. She wants to study pharmacology. But then her mother gets sick and she's tethered to the island and she has to make money. So what does she do? She cons a couple gullible tourists with these useless talismans and phony protection rituals. But then one of the tourists ends up dead and at the center of a strange string of murders. And the truth Selena has been denying can no longer be avoided. There is evil lurking in the forest that surround St. Virgil. Now to find out what that evil is, make sure to pick up It Waits in the Forest by Sarah Das. And thanks again to Disney Books for sponsoring this episode. Jen, American history. Yeah, well, so I came at this a little sideways because... Actually, the first book I thought of is What It Is Like to Go to War by Carl Marlantes. Marlantes has written a bunch of great war novels, including Matterhorn, which is like an epic about Vietnam based on his own experiences. And I like totally recommend it. But this book I thought of because, you know, I feel like reading historical narratives or memoir, like you're going to get a really, you know, like heroic in a lot of ways view of what war can be like and not that that is not part of it but Marlantes wrote this book because he feels like we deeply fail our armed forces both in terms of preparing them for what it's going to be like and then when they come home 
he's actually looking at like the philosophy of the military and combat. So he's digging into like Homer and Young and like the historical uh, ways that soldiers are prepared and treated. And then like what it's like to be a 19 year old in the armed forces. Like this is there's a lot of psychology and spirituality and philosophy and history in here. And I think it's I think it's very accessible. I mean, I don't think especially since you're not concerned about content or comprehension, like I think there's going to be a lot here for the two of you to dig into. And he's coming from, like I said, he served. So like this is all based on his own experiences as well as all of the research and writing he's done. I think he's really thoughtful. I think he's very insightful. And he's very much like, yeah, we need to understand more about what it's like to be a soldier in armed combat. And then, you know, before, during, after, like all of those things. So, again, a little bit of sideways, but I think there's really important food for thought in here, especially for a younger person who, like, is obsessed with war narratives. <laughs> like, let's compl- let's complicate that a little bit. Uh, so yeah. that, again, is what it is like to go to war by Carl Marlantes. Um, from one person especially interested in American revolutionary history to another, uh, I've picked You Never Forget Your First, which is a biography of George Washington by Alexis Coe. And as you can tell from the title, this one is a little bit tongue-in-cheek, which I think would make it a great pick for a 12-year-old. So Alexis is writing a biography of Washington that is not based on reverence. Like, this is not kind of your typical biography of our first president that's like, he could do no wrong, he was a military genius. Like, the fact is he lost more battles than he won. The fact that we won the American Revolution is mostly an accident and really had very little to do with Washington's intelligence or strategy, of which he had arguably not a lot of. Gasp! I know! How dare! (laughs) How very dare! Also, he owned people (laughs) and was kind of a goofball as a president. So all of that, nobody really likes to talk about. But I think that a 12-year-old will find, like, you'll get all of the facts about what Washington accomplished. And then you will also get actual consideration of him as a human person. Like, not consideration of him as this, like, on a pedestal mythological figure, but as somebody who found his cabinet deeply obnoxious and who like left the presidency in a huff because everyone around him was driving him nuts. You know, like just a a dude, like just a dude. (laughs) And being just a dude, I think is a great way for kids to experience world leaders, especially ones that we tend to mythologize, because then they can see themselves in, in like doing those sorts of things and like having these big great lives but one of the the problems i think with valorizing the founding fathers and like different cults of identity that we tend to put around figures from american history is that it makes it really hard for kids to think about doing those sorts of things themselves mm. because then they feel like well i'm not you know this unimpeachable cherry tree kind of person um well it turns out neither was washington so uh it's funny it's got a lot of like kind of funny asides that i think a 12 year old will appreciate and covers all that time period stuff and you know um washington was like our first like the the first soldier of america you know like the he it's very much about battles and military strategy and stuff like that. So that is You Never Forget Your First by Alexis Co. All right. Our next question is from Riley, who says, I am an English lit student who just found out that my study abroad trip to Athens, Greece has been approved. I will be spending the whole summer, May through August, gallivanting around the Mediterranean, Omicron willing. 
could you give me some recommendations to read leading up to my trip or while abroad? I'm a huge classics nerd and passionate about Greco-Roman arts slash history slash culture and have read all of the Madeline Miller-esque myth retellings. Something new to me, like a travel memoir or something offbeat that I may not have thought of, would be really welcome. I'm just going to keep talking. So I went to the contributors for help with this one. And Rebecca Hussey pointed me at a book that I think is going to be great for you. It's Three Summers by Margarita Liberaki, translated by Karen Van Dyke. And it is about three sisters over the course of three summers in Greece, outside of Athens. Like, hello, it's a summer book about young women near Athens. Like, it it does take place, it's uh, sort of historical, I guess. It was contemporary at the time it was written. Um, But it takes place in the 30s before the Second World War. And uh, yeah, it's about like the three of them like deciding like, oh, you know, coming of age, like who are they going to be? How are they different from each other? They love each other, but also sisters. Like, some of us know what that's like, you know, siblings. Mm. And, you know looking at the adults around them and planning their lives and all of those things. So one of the reviewers referred to it as Jane Austen, but Greece, And that cracked mm. me up a little bit. But it is like sort of a recently re-found classic of Greek literature. So I feel like it fits into all of your wheelhouses. Again, that's Three Summers by Margarita Liberaki, translated by Karen Van Dyke. Okay, I picked a travel memoir for you. It's Honey, Olive's Octopus by Christopher Beckham. And this is out from the University of California Press, so it's not very well-known or, like, well-heard of. It came out in 2013, but it's so delightful. So Christopher Beckham's a food writer, and he goes on this tour of Europe, I mean, of Greece, trying specifically to identify the foundational elements of Greek cuisine, and then where to get the best version of those things. So it's about olives, obviously honey and octopus, um, olive seafood, um, cheese, beans, wine, honey, like all of these things that he thinks really make up the whole idea of of Greek food. And then he goes to these very far-flung places, like he goes to Crete to bake bread, and he goes to Thassos, where apparently the best olives are. I don't know, sure. Um, and Naxos, which I guess is where the best cheese is made, and like all of the things that go into um, what defines something as being like the best of a thing, and all of these very traditional artisanal methods for creating these foods, why some of them are so high effort, what makes the food so good. It's really slow. Like it's a, um, you know, it takes forever to gather this one specific kind of thyme honey and then you have to let it settle. And then like, it's it's very like slow food, slow travel, really soaking up the sunshine and appreciating everything you're putting into your mouth. Um, and I don't, even if you don't plan to necessarily go to like all these places that he goes to, like if you're going to Athens and you're going to stay in Athens, that's cool. But like thinking about what you're putting in your mouth while you're there and why it is such a beloved and well-known and like often replicated cuisine throughout the world. And where like you give it gives you, I think, different ideas for things to try, even if some of that is outside of your world. Like, I don't know a lot of Americans who eat octopus. I like it. I eat it. But like, if you go to Greece, you probably should try it because it's probably amazing. So it's a big, long edible to do list in my head <laughs> if you're going to Greece. So that's Honey Olives Octopus by Christopher Backen. 
All right. Question three is from Nora, who says, I recently read the Six of Crows duology by Lee Bardugo. I love the characters, the relationships, and the heists that they plan and execute. I enjoy how I only got a portion of the plans for the heist and then was blown away at the end when all the pieces came together. I was hoping, hoping you could give me books with similar premises and execution. I really enjoyed the idea of an impossible heist with a complicated plan, and I love the genius of Kaz Brucker. I also really love the idea of the main characters being criminals, uncaring of who they hurt to achieve their goals. Um, let's see. I don't mind romance, but would prefer it not to be the main focus of the relationship. Um, Nora is 16, and her favorite genres are thrillers and mysteries, along with dystopia and fantasy, but I'm open to reading pretty much anything except nonfiction. Okay, Jen, what you got? Welcome to my favorite comp for Six of Crows. <laughs> it's the Gilded Wolves series by Roshni Chokshi. It has heists. It has a group of young people from all different sort of walks and skills and sexualities and ethnicities and feelings uh, coming together in found family to plan impossible heists and steal things and have feelings about each other and they're really complicated feelings and it's just I really feel like it's all the things you're looking for. Um, it is. It takes place in the late 1800s in France in this like alternate France where there's magic and it is the like sort of leader of the group Severin is a treasure hunter he owns a hotel even though he's like 19 he's like very fancy for a 19 year old and there's this artifact that he has reasons why he wants to steal it as well as like he got hired to and so there's all of these different like plots within plots within plots and betrayals and loyalties and who is in love with who and who knows that they're in love with who and oh it's just like there's so much going on um there's three books in the series currently I, because I haven't caught up with the end of the with the third book, I don't know if that's like the end, if it's a trilogy or if there's more. So you'll have to do your own research. But at the very least, there are three books you can read and enjoy. And I think you will love it. Oh, a couple of quick content warnings for ableism, anti-Semitism and racism. So again, that is the Gilded Wolf series by Roshni Chokshi. I, too, am giving you my favorite <laughs> comp. For the Six of Crows duology, and that is The Lies of Luck Lamora by Scott Lynch, which is the first book in the Gentleman Bastards trilogy, which is the same story. <laughs> I mean, it's not the same story, but it's kind of, I mean, it's the similar, all the stuff that you love about the Six of Crows is here. So this is a group of orphans who live in this island city called Camor, which is like big Venetian vibes. Um, and they live in like the underground. They're all petty criminals. They're being trained by this con artist to um, commit various and sundry heists. Locke Lamora is their leader. And the book bounces back and forth between like their their childhood growing up together and being trained by the he's called the the sightless priest or the eyeless priest. I don't remember. It's like a con man who pretends to be blind and also pretends to be a priest. He trains all of these kids to like go off and run these heists and these cons. And then so you get that past and then you get the present where they kind of rule the underworld in a lot of ways, but are also planning all these other cons that you are following along with them as they commit. There's a big wrinkle in this plan as another like powerful shady entity rises up in the underworld to take it over and Lamora and his group have to like defend themselves. And there's plots on plots on plots on plots. And that thing that you're describing from Six of Crows where like the heist is planned away from the eyes of the reader for in a lot mm -hmm. of ways. And so when it unfolds, you are like as amazed as everyone else, you know, that thing happens in this book and in all of them. 
There is a very slow-burning romance between Lamora and one of the, the, well, not one of, the only female character in the entire series, which is my main complaint with the series. Maybe my only complaint, really. But they don't actually, like, physically speak to each other until, I think, book three. But you just know she's, like, out there somewhere and that he is pining for her. And it's mentioned a couple of times. But it's not anything that's like the main thing that's happening in the book. It's big. It's a big, big bromance. Lamora and his best friend, Jean, are just it's like dumb and dumber, but with magic (laughs) and and heisting. (laughs) Like, it's very like, oh, look at them. They're just joined at the hip. It's very feel good. Although not everything that happens is like good. Some bad things happen to these characters. But it, it has that, you know, these are criminals. These are criminals who don't necessarily care about who they're hurting to get their way. It just so happens that the things that they want normally align with my values. So I don't <laughs> super care. You know what I mean? Like there, there's a lot of Robin Hood stuff happening here where they're robbing from the very, very rich to help feed like orphans in their city and pretending like they're bad guys, which is the same thing that Six of Crows does. And we all love that. We eat it up. We love criminals with a heart of gold who aren't actually hurting anyone we care about. It's amazing. So that's The Lies of Lock Lamora by Scott Lynch. All right. Our next question is from Jacqueline, who says, I'm on a journey of changing the way I think about money and manifesting a richer life. Can you recommend a novel about a wealthy woman living a life of luxury? I'm looking for something slice of lifey. It doesn't have to be heavy on plot. It can be set in any time or place. Ancient Egypt does come to mind, though, and modern day Italy. I also would like the woman to be a generally good person, not snobby or rude or ungrateful. This question was hard because there are not a lot of books out there about nice, wealthy people. <laughs> Let's be real here for a minute. Also, I wish that it were true that reading about rich people made you rich. That would be really nice if it was true. But anyway, I'm not, I'm not here to step on like your dreams. Like Godspeed to you. Yeah, exactly. I'm not, I, I hope it works out for you. Um, so I will keep going. I, I was like, okay, how about a wealthy widow who solves crime like how about that so that's what i picked for you because she is a good person because she's solving crime uh so auntie lee's delights by ovidia Yu is my pick it is the first in the singaporean mystery series i will give a content warning for homophobia in this book uh and yeah so rosie who is known as auntie lee is very rich and she could just be out here like you know playing mahjong going shopping like crazy rich asian style instead she has a restaurant called auntie lee's delights where it's like home cooking and she herself cooks and she's like a busybody and loves to know what's going on and who everybody is and who's in town and all of that jazz and then a body is found in one of singapore's tourist havens which is like a BFD because, you know, there's not crime in Singapore and also they definitely don't want there to be dead bodies where the tourists are. And of course, Auntie Lee sticks her nose in and, you know, is getting up in the business. It's fun. It's, you know, it's quick. It is... uh it's very enjoyable. I mean, it's 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 a it's a cozy murder mystery. Like I don't know what else to tell you. But Auntie Lee is great. Uh, so again, that's Auntie Lee's delights by Ovidia Yu. Okay, I had to go ask people yeah. <laughs> about this one because I love a book about rich people, but usually they're bad, they're awful, um, and that's why we like it. Right? right? It's a little <laughs> bit of Jean Freud. Um, and rich people problems are just funny to to read about. (laughs) Anyway, so I got this recommendation from Cassie, who's a contributor um, here at Book Riot. And I like 
I'm going to go read this myself. So it's House of Trelawney by Hannah Rothschild, which I think is just the perfect last name for an author writing about the wealthy. And this is about Trelawney Castle in Cornwall, which has been in the same family, the Trelawneys, who are earls, for seven or 800 years. And the book takes place in 2008 in the middle of the financial crisis, when after like 24 earls in a row and a couple of world wars, and again, the financial crisis, have reduced this castle to a like crumbling relic of what it used to be. The current Earl, Kiddo, lives there with his wife, Jane, their kids, their dog, his parents, his aunt, Tuffy, who's a scientist who studies fleas. And the book is mostly about four women, Jane, the wife, his sister, Blaze, who left the family and is kind of estranged from her parents and works in finance and is like one of the only people at her firm who predicted the financial implosion in 2008 and has to deal with like snobby American men who didn't believe her um, through that whole thing. And then also Anastasia, who is Kiddo's sister, who is also estranged from the family, um, and then like makes a triumphant return at one point. And so mostly you're following these four women, some of whom are appear wealthy, like Jane is the wife of an earl. I don't know what the title for that would be. It's not Earl S. Earl Rena. That's not a thing. I don't even know. Like there's a duke and a duchess. What's an earl's wife? That's that's something. But I don't know. I what think it is. she's anyway. a lady. Lady, I could yeah. be wrong. Lady Jane is who that is, who like is an earl's wife and lives in this giant castle. But in reality, they don't have enough money to keep it up. Um, and then Blaze, who doesn't live in a castle, but is in finance and is doing very well. So all of the women here either outwardly appear very wealthy or are very wealthy or live in this like aristocratic kind of anachronistic way. Like his parents who are snooty, 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 but have no place to be snooty because they make no money and like their house is falling down around their ears. And but the four women who were keeping this family going and trying to find a way to like morally and ethically restore the house to what it was without, you know, being terrible people. It's just fascinating. <laughs> and a real like, um, what do you call it? A real testimony to the ways in which women keep families going. And if like if all of these women in this family went on strike, this entire legacy of 700 years of history would completely crumble. And so it's kind of like a will they won't they, you know, like, what are they going to do with this money? What are they going to do with this house? So it's very humanizing. Like they're not there are bad people in the book, like the parents are really awful. But for the most part, the main characters are just trying to get by, you know, and like just trying to do the right thing with their money, with their legacies, with their inheritance, all of that. So that's House of Trelawney by Hannah Rothschild. And it is time for our next sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Avid Reader Press. So this next book is a really fun sounding mashup of different genres. There's a little time travel, a little romance, a little spy thriller action going on. So in the near future, a civil servant is offered the salary of her dreams and is shortly afterward told what project she'll be working on. A recently established government ministry is gathering quote unquote expats from across history to establish whether time travel is feasible for the body, but also for the fabric of space time. This is an exquisitely original and feverishly fun fusion of genres and ideas. The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley asks, what does it mean to defy history when history is living in your house? Colleen Bradley's answer is a blazing, unforgettable testament to what we owe each other in a changing world. It kind of gives Outlander meets Cloud Atlas or If the Time Traveler's Wife was written by Sally Rooney or Colson Whitehead. Make sure to check out The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley. And thanks again to Avid Reader Press for sponsoring this episode. 
Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. So King Solomon says something very interesting to his son before he dies, and that is, quote, don't let the white man take the house, end quote. These, as I just mentioned, are King Solomon's last words to his son as he dies. Now, all four Solomon siblings must return to North Carolina to save the kingdom, their ancestral home, and 200 acres of land from a development company. Told in alternating viewpoints, Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris is a searing portrait of the power of family and letting go of things that no longer serve you, exploring the burden of familial expectations, the detriment of miscommunication, and the lessons and legacies we pass on to our children. It's an explosive and emotional story of four siblings, each fighting their own personal battle, because who isn't, who return home in the wake of their father's death. Make sure to check out Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. Okay, question five is from M who says, I'm looking for books with disability and chronic illness representation. I am a type one diabetic and struggle to see myself in a lot of the books I read because of my disability. And I'm always looking for more reads that are inclusive, inclusive of and accurately portray living with a chronic illness. I read a lot of the go to recommendations for this category. Get a Life, Chloe Brown, The Girls Are Never Gone, The Kiss Quotient Series, etc., and I'm struggling to find something new. I tend to have good luck finding nonfiction that fits this vein, but I'm struggling with fiction, so fiction recommendations would be ideal. I'll read anything genre-wise, but books by disabled and or chronically ill authors are strongly preferred. Okay, Jen? Welcome to Everfair, which like fits all of your criteria. This is by Nisi Shal, who is an amazing writer, and this is alternate history with like a little bit of fantasy thrown in, but it's I feel like it's more alternate history than it is fantasy. It takes place in uh, the Congo if the native populations and the uh, socialists and African-American missionaries who like moved to the Congo had technology that could help them counter the Belgian colonial forces. And so it's reimagining like, what would that have looked like? And it's a multi-character cast, many of whom struggle with disability or chronic illness of various kinds. You get like these British emigres who are like trying to set up this socialist utopia. You get locals who are like fighting back against the colonizing forces. You get, you know, all of these different people coming together in these wildly fascinating, like this story jumps around in so many interesting ways. And I do feel like you have to hang with it. So like, I'm just I'm just straight up telling you, like, hang with it. It's totally worth it. But I just think it's an amazing feat of storytelling and re-envisioning what history could have looked like in one of these like horrible genocidal moments. Like, what if? What if? And it's, yeah, it's great. The characters are, you're going to, like, fall in love with these characters. You're going to be like, oh, man, if only. Like, if only. And it's it's just a fantastic book. They're like, I think one day we might get a sequel, just FYI. But I do think it hang it ends on a satisfying note. So it doesn't feel like, you know, you're just waiting for whatever's going to happen next. Although I really do hope we get to revisit this world someday. Uh, so again, that's Everfair by Nisi Shaw. 
All right. I picked Girl at War by Sarah Novik, which comes for trigger warnings for ethnic violence and a lot of harm to children. That's kind of the whole plot is harm to children. So Sarah Novik is an author who lives in Philly and is from Croatia and is a deaf activist. And she wrote this book, which is largely it's like one of those memoir novels, you know, Mm. like this is based on her experience. And a lot of the stuff is like literally the things that happened to her or the things that she experienced growing up, but it's fictionalized. Uh, and so it opens in Zagreb, the capital of Croatia. It's about a 10-year-old, 10-year-old girl named Anna uh, in the early 90s, I think 1991. And she has like a pretty normal childhood. She plays soccer with her best friend, Luca. She takes care of her sister, her little baby sister, who has some chronic health problems. And you know, she lives with her parents and she just kind of lives her life. And then when the civil war in Yugoslavia breaks out, all of that stops. Like the city that she lives in becomes a war zone almost immediately. Her parents try to get passage to the U.S. uh, because that's where they can get medical care for her sister. But as they're trying to escape, they get separated and like the awful tragedy occurs. And then you're with this little girl, Anna, as she survive like literally tries to survive in the streets by herself um and then you bounce back and forth in time so you're with her then when you know in the early 90s as a 10 year old and then you're with her now as a young adult living in the u.s i think she lives in new york and she has not told anyone about her past she hasn't told her boyfriend she hasn't told her friends but she's invited to speak about it with i think it's a u.n council about the experience of children and children child soldiers and like children during civil war and all of that um and she makes the decision to go back to croatia as an adult to try to to find some kind of peace, like to try to find the people who she left behind, who she was separated from, and like make some kind of peace with her past. And so that's that's the whole thing. Is you're you know from her ten from being ten to being a young adult in the U.S. really mired in this like secretive trauma that she's been carrying around to her trip back to Croatia to try to make sense of what happened to her when she was a kid. It's heavy. It's really 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 heavy, but it's short. It's such a weird reading experience because it's only like three hundred pages. And so much happens and so much of it is awful. And especially when you're our age, I think, you know, I I have memories of seeing this civil war unfold on the news and having zero understanding Mm. of what was happening Mm. because I was like seven or eight when all of that happened in Croatia. I had no idea what was going on. And probably my parents didn't really either. You know, like they were watching it, but this is it was so far removed from our experience and like ethnic struggles of that of. Look, the U.S. has ethnic struggles. Okay, I'm not trying to say that we are that we have no familiarity with that experience. But I remember my dad being like, watching these two different kinds of white people fight, I don't understand. Like, he had just has no, he just had no comprehension of what was driving those struggles. And I think that's a lot of the reason why we don't have a ton of fiction in the U.S. about mm. this part of history is that we just don't understand. But they look the same. It's such a shallow mm-hmm. understanding of, like, ethnic history. It's so bizarre. But reading this was really illuminating and helped me contextualize a lot of the the things that I didn't grok about what was going on when I was a kid watching it on the news. So that's Girl at War by Sarah Novick. All right. Our next question is from Other Amanda. Thank you for Yeah, thank you for clarifying. Clarifying. Uh, okay. So Other Amanda says, I'm looking for a book, preferably fiction, set during the Cold War, preferably in Russia. I was born in the mid-80s, so I wasn't exactly following the news back then, but The Americans is my favorite TV show of all time, and I'm fascinated by this period in history. I'm not interested in a book with a clear pro-American or pro-Soviet agenda. No propaganda, please. Speaking of books that are entirely about harm to children, right. uh, before I give my pick for this, I'm just going to give a quick shout out to the works of John le Carre. Like, 
Mm-hmm. You have possibly heard of him, like the preeminent thriller writer of Cold War era. His books are not, I don't think, specifically pro anyone. Like everybody is a little bit terrible in them, mm-hmm. FYI. So you should read some, obviously. But OK, so that's feels that felt too obvious to just be my only pick. So I went with Child 44 by Tom Rob Smith, which comes with content warnings for like harm, violent harm to children, violent homophobia, animal abuse, and rape. It is a dark, dark book. It is set in Russia, uh, in communist Russia. The main character, Leo, is an officer of the MGB who, like, follows the party line. Like, he does what he's told. He believes the party line. Like, he is, like, sort of the manifestation of party training. But then... A young boy it turns up like horrifically murdered. He is ordered to arrest his own wife. And he there's a man that he knows has not done anything wrong, who is brutally tortured. And he is like, everything I thought I knew is falling apart around me. And he gets obsessed with solving the and this young boy who was murdered is not the only one. So he gets obsessed with solving the murders of these children and also figuring out like, how do I like if I don't turn my wife in, I might die but I don't want to turn my wife in, but I also don't want to die. Like, what do I do? Mm. Also, I need to solve these murders. Like, it's all there's a lot going on in this book. Like I said, it's dark, it's heavy, but I think that assuming you don't mind murder mysteries, like, you are going to get a big dose of what it was like to be in communist Russia plus murder, as I said. So again, that's Child 44 by Tom Rob Smith. I missed the part of this question where you were asking for books set in Russia. So. Well, it's said preferably. So that, that, okay, leaves, yeah. that leaves some room. Well, this is not set in Russia. So <laughs> sorry about that. It's American Spy by Lauren Wilkinson, which despite the title is not 100% pro-Americans actions in this time period. So it takes place in 86 during the Cold War. And the main character is a woman named Marie who works for the FBI. She's an intelligence officer. Um, she's a black woman in this like very white old boys club. And she has lost... Her career momentum, because, like, no one will give her a chance. She finally gets assigned to work a task force that is aimed at investigating and undermining Thomas Sankara, who is a communist, the the new communist president of Burkina Faso. Um, And so, of course, this makes him, like, a target for America's intervention, because across the world, we were targeting any sort of rumblings of communism or anything that looked like communism or quacked like communism or smelled like communism. And so they send this only black woman that they have in the FBI to go fix it. Go fix the communism in Africa. Only black woman. This is obviously what we hired you to do. (laughs) And so she goes to do that, even though she obviously sees what's happening here and is like very not into it. She actually has a lot of respect for Sankara. And then when she gets there, her respect for him turns into some other feelings for him as she's like observing him and interacting with him and all of that. Uh, And she has... She's told to, like, manufacture a coup functionally to, like, get rid of this guy. But then her feelings are kind of split. Um, And it's not just her feelings. It's also her, like, morality. Like, what are we even doing here? This was an elected person. Like, why am I here to destroy this guy's vision when this is what his people want? And, like, uh, squeaky, squeaky, squeaky. So it's, you know, as you can see, it's not, this is not pro-American intervention in countries where we had really no business being. It's also not pro-Soviet either. The Soviet Union is not really brought up that much here like it's not a really big factor so it's more about the consequences of us interfering in other countries so that's american spy by lauren wilkinson all right our last question is from cassie who says i used to be really into historical fiction and i've been in the mood to get back into it 
I read a lot of Philippa Gregory books and got kind of burnt out on them, but I really like her style. I listened to a podcast about Marie Antoinette and realized that I would love to read more about France and the French French Revolution. I'm not interested in Les Mis, and I would take anything else fiction or nonfiction. I'd love a broad view or a multi-perspective, but I'm up for straight historical fiction, too. I've never read anything on the topic. Okay, Jen. I am delighted to recommend to you Versailles by Katherine Davis, which is like 200 pages and Mm -hmm. is about Marie Antoinette. It's like a tiny, short, perfect historical novel about Marie Antoinette. It mostly centers on the moment where they are imprisoned and like, you know, people are calling for heads. But it does give you some moments in her childhood and then during her reign as queen. And it is so compelling. It is so beautifully written. Like, I just, it really is like a short, perfect book about Marie Antoinette. Like, cannot recommend the reading experience highly enough. Like, that's all I want to say about this. Like, you need to read it. It's great. Um, Again, that is Versailles by Katherine Davis. Why won't you read Les Mis, though, Cassie? <laughs> Listen, I can. I love Les Mis, but I can sympathize also. Like, that book is long. It's very long, but you can mostly skip the, it's like... It's true. You can skip part. a lot of stuff. <laughs> like, yeah. you can skip a lot of... There's a lot of stuff that you don't... That's not relevant. I'm sure that there are... There's so many readers out there right now who are like, <gasps> Lisa, guess, how dare you? <laughs> um, that's fine. Okay, I picked A Place of Greater Safety by Hilary Mantel. Dame Hilary Mantel. I don't know if she's actually a dame. I probably shouldn't say that because I know that's like a real thing mm. in the UK. But this is a work of historical fiction. It's very similar to the Thomas Cromwell books where she is taking a famous historical figure and then writing a book from his perspective but not first person like this isn't you're in the brain of a person it's all it's all very descriptive so a place of greater safety is about three men danton who was an orator during the revolution robespierre who we all know and desmoulins who i've actually never heard of and i'm probably pronouncing his name totally wrong but these were three leaders or like big figures of the french revolution and you are with them from the beginning of the revolution to the end and their families and like their wives and their kids all watching as they ascend and then inevitably descend um, at the end of the revolution. So if you have no background of the revolution at all or like don't know who these men are at all, you might be a little confused going into it because it is very like en media race, like you are dropped into the the action kind of. But you get you, you pick it up, you know, like I know who Robespierre is, but the other two I didn't have a ton of familiarity with. But you pick up what's going on pretty quickly and it goes in and out like it's not a steady narrative. It's not. And here are 30 years day by day, even though the book is almost 800 pages long. Um, but it, it so it drops in and out of different time periods and different really important events or speeches uh, and things like that. So it's a big overview of some of the big players in the revolution and the big engines like the 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 people who are making the thing happen who are kind of pulling the strings behind the scenes and directing the action uh and all of that so that's a place of greater safety by hillary mantel and that is our show I will end it on my terrible pronunciation of French names. You're very welcome. So thank you all so much to our audio editor, Jen Zink. Thank you all for listening. You can find more recommendations at bookriot.com and find all of our other podcasts at bookriot.com slash listen. Please leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And thank you so much to our sponsors. You can find us on social media. I'm on Instagram at I'm Amanda Nelson and Jen. I am on Twitter and Tumblr as Jen IRL, J-E-N-N-I-R-L, and on Instagram as I am Jen IRL. And we will talk to you all next week. Bye.